0: They were coming at night, and the dog began barking and running around the camp. And of course, this was the amazing thing. Everyone would freeze when they saw him suddenly sit and then stand, and then he began to growl. And then those ears, as soon as the ears went up, they knew that the planes were really on the way, maybe two minutes to three minutes away. There were people who wanted him dead within the Australian force, unfortunately, and they went after him. But the boys all managed to, um, to cover up for Horry and make sure that he was taken everywhere with him because they, apart from loving him and admiring his courage and his friendliness, he was terrific with every one of them.
1: Jen Kelly, and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we're back for the final episode of our series on some of Australia's greatest war animals with popular author Roland Perry. In our first episode, Roland told us the story from his new book, Red Lead, about the brave ship's cat who became a wartime legend after surviving the sinking of HMAS Perth. And last week, Roland shared the tale of what he calls Australia's greatest war horse from one of his previous books, Bill the Bastard. Today, Roland is back to tell us the wonderful story from another of his books called Horry the War Dog. Horry was found by Aussie soldiers as a starving puppy in the Libyan desert during the Second World War, and he went on to become much more than a mascot, repeatedly saving the lives of men in his battalion, with his exceptional ability to detect enemy aircraft minutes before they flew overhead and launched their deadly attack. Now Roland Perry is here to tell us the story. Welcome back to the podcast, Roland.
0: Thank you very much, Jen.
1: Now, can you tell us first where did Horry first turn up? <laughs> he
0: turned up like a bad penny, <laughs> a very sick and sorry penny, in the Libyan desert in uh, early 1941, and he was um, abandoned. We think we don't know by um, the locals there in Libya. We don't. We're not sure, but uh, two motorcycle guys who were part of the signals department of the very tough six divisions, um, machine gun division. They were crashing through the desert on their Norton motorbikes. These were both of them, by the way, and particularly the main character, Moody, was a, um, Jim Moody, was a a motorbike specialist who used to go in tournaments and, and so forth and events around the country in Australia. So he was really hot on a motorbike and they were whizzing through the desert and they found this little dog. And they felt sorry for him because he was obviously dying. He'd been left there and he was a bit thin and they took him back to the camp um, in Libya where they were staying. Ikingi was the camp, I-K-I-N-G-I, and they they looked after him and um, he was a smart, intelligent little animal and they, they the whole crew in the uh, signals department, there were about eight of them, fell in love with the dog. They all loved this dog and he was became their mascot, and eventually the 6th Battalion's mascot, but uh, that's how it all began. He was very young. He was only a pup when they took him on, and uh, so he grew up with them, and uh, that was his life from
1: then on, really being an Australian. And how did they come up with his name?
0: Yeah, that's a beauty. That's where a typical Aussie discussion, I love it. Um, and they were all sitting around and they are trying to think of a name and they were called, you know, the Wog Dog was one thing, they were Woggy and all sorts of things came up like that because that's how they, you know, very badly, <laughs> everyone was called a Wog who wasn't Australian, basically in the Middle East. Um, and that didn't work and then they thought, they all liked the name Hurry. And the reason this is beautifully, simplistically Oz, they said, Well, I've never met a bloke who wasn't a nice bloke. His name was Hurry. <laughs> uh, he was Hurry. <laughs> he was Hurry from then on. They soon learned he was a pretty uh, snappy little creature. One of them uh, carried snakes in a basket. Um, a guy called Murchison who uh, Murchie is his name and he had snakes in a basket he had pet snakes which worried all the others in the in the tent because he'd let them out play with them every now and again and um, one of them confronted one it was an asp actually one of them confronted Horry and Horry shredded it very quickly got it you know it was a very gutsy effort because those asps could easily have killed him and we know snakes can kill animals. It happens a lot in the in Australian outback uh, dogs, particularly, who take them on. And they were all amazed that Harry was so quick as a young dog and he snapped the head off the asp. So they knew they had a. They called him a, a real digger after that. You know, he was, he, was
1: he was such a small dog, but he proved surprisingly useful as a guard dog, didn't he?
0: Oh yeah. Well, that that's the amazing thing. That's the thing that was the huge bonus for the whole of that division. They were stuck in Greece. Uh, they went from Libya to Greece to fight the. They'd been fighting the Italians. They went over to Greece where the Germans were coming down very heavily through Greece and Crete. And they had Stukas, which was these dive bombers they'd actually used in the Spanish Civil War, but they had the dual function of um, being dive bombers and also had machine guns, and they could dive straight down and then pull up. They were an amazing development, a real victory uh, for for the Germans because we had virtually, that's the British troops there, including Australians, had no no air cover, effectively no air cover. So these stukas could come down and crash and bomb and strafe and kill right throughout Greece. And uh, this little dog, once he got over, once they got into Piraeus Harbour, which a lot of your listeners will know from going to holidays on Greece, they were bombed when they were getting off the boat to go into uh, uh, Athens and the dog was petrified and they were hiding. That's his master, Jim Moody were hiding in a drain, and the dog was trembling and upset, but it suddenly snapped and jumped out on the road and started barking at the planes. Now, uh, And bombs were being dropped not far away, and he, he he was afraid of the bombs, but he wasn't afraid of the planes because they couldn't do anything directly. They were up in the sky, but he was bouncing around, and he finally got so much courage that Moody had to take him off the road, grab him, and put him back and hide him in the in the drain with him because the dog was so courageous. And from then on it uh, it did the same thing. But the great thing was it could hear these stukas coming. It had massive ears for its size, you know, amazing ears, and it would straighten, it would sit and then stand and sit again, and the ears would flop around and then suddenly go erect. And he began to groan and moan and growl, and then he would bark like crazy. Now he got He heard those planes coming. Someone, I had in the book two minutes. I first first thought that was about right, but I reckon it was five minutes on occasion. Five
1: minutes. That's incredible.
0: Yeah, he could hear them coming. And so when this happened, when the caravan of uh, of, of soldiers were moving along roads and things in their trucks with all their equipment and things as machine gunners, they would, the dog would give a warning. It wasn't by plan. He wasn't out the front all the time. But on one occasion, for example, Moody was thrown off his motorbike during an attack of Stukas and they left. And then Horry rushed into the road because they were coming back and was barking and carrying on. And they all knew by that stage that that was a sign the Stukas were coming and they made for the ditches and the, trains and things by the side of the road and were saved by this dog and this happened innumerable times during the war and he was known as the early warning signal he did it there was one amazing moment during the um during the war where he they were coming at night and the dog began barking and running around the camp and he went to the butcher's camp because the butcher had been giving him nice fine cuts of meat and as everyone was running for cover the dog did a dance around the butcher's, butcher's tent. And after the Stugas had attacked and had gone off, the butcher said, did I dream it or did hurry come and bark outside my tent and wake me up? And they all said, no, <laughs> he was making sure you made it because he wanted those nice fine cuts of meat you were giving him. <laughs> and that's uh, that's a true story. Barry the butcher.
1: And they became friends for life, didn't they, as we'll hear later on?
0: They were great friends and he wasn't <laughs> part of the little group but he was very much loved by Horry because he gave him great food. But, um, yeah, he, was, he, would have, he said I would have taken a bullet for the dog and others all said that too.
1: And this, this five-minute warning, how would this com- compare? This was obviously because Horry had inc- incredible hearing. So how did that compare to human hearing? How far away were the planes when the humans would hear them?
0: Well, they would be um, right on them. They wouldn't hear them until it was too late effectively too late. They'd be coming in low, they could swoop down, they could go straight down, aim at a target, then then veer off, uh, amazing planes. And they were heard, that was sort of like a screaming banshee, a thousand screaming banshees, the way it was described. And it was part of the weaponry because everyone froze when they heard these planes coming. So if you heard them, it was too late to run, effectively. So the dog was giving the warning, and that's why they were running for cover long before the planes arrived. That's why he was so powerful. So virtually, they were right on top of the camps um, when they were well, they were heard for the first time by the um, by the diggers.
1: The other amazing thing about having Hori as an early warning system is it didn't just give them time to dive into the trenches. It also gave them time to line up the aircraft with their machine guns.
0: Yes, well, they had that. That happened on several occasions too, and um, quite a, amazing. They could get into position. Now they weren't going to beat the Stukas, but they were going to give them, they were going to pot shot at least one every day they could collect by getting into position and all the machine gunners would just live for that moment to get out of the open and and, uh, line their guns up against the Stukas coming in. So the dog gave them on the boats as well uh, when they were being transported there and back from Greece and Crete. Horry gave them plenty of warning to uh, to fire back, and that happened on occasions. Uh, quite amazing when you think about that. So that, all that division absolutely adored this dog. As I said before, most of them made the comment they dug a bullet for him, which is um, what not many people say about other people even. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. And and lots of other units had mascots, dogs and cats, but really Horry was more than a mascot, wasn't he? He he sort of became a valuable member of that battalion. He
0: was a he was a weapon and they made him a a, a member by giving him uh, the color patches and and everything associated with being a member of that division. And he was, you know, he he had a little jacket with um with the insignia on it and everything. And and he was very proudly trotting around in that, um, that especially in the cold weather, of course. But, uh, no, he, he sort of understood the fuss because it was related to his barking and screaming at the, um, at the planes coming in. So dogs, as we know, do associate rewards with their actions and this is what he realised, that he was important. That's why he didn't hesitate to, to jump out in the open and bark or get ready to bark. And, of course, this was the amazing thing. Everyone would freeze when they saw him suddenly sit and then stand and then he began begin to growl and then those ears, would, those, as soon as the ears went up, they knew that the planes were really on the way, maybe two minutes, two, three minutes away, yeah.
1: Now, of course, Moody and uh, the other guys, the rebels, as as they were called, weren't supposed to have a dog. What what sort of measures did they have to take to hide Horry?
0: Yeah, well, it was amusing at times, <laughs> frightening in other times because um, there were laws, you know, the military laws, you couldn't have animals at one point, especially going into battle, and so they had to hide him in the pack, a backpack. He was such a little dog. And uh, there was one incident when they were lined up to be marched out when they were still in Libya and some Arab boys were sort of around the place taunting the soldiers with, you know, Aussies, you're going to you know, get you nice girl in, in, in the town and all this stuff was going on, and the dog Sort of reacted to this in the pack. <laughs> and, uh, what, the guy carrying him, it wasn't Moody at this stage. It was uh, another soldier, and he um, pretended he'd swallowed a fly because his voice—he pretended you know, the, the reaction from Horry, and he, he coughed as if it was from the dog. But there was that moment. <laughs> uh, there were several moments like that, and. There were there were people who wanted him dead within the Australian force, unfortunately, and uh, they went after him. But the boys all managed to um, to cover up for Horry and make sure that he was taken everywhere with him because they, apart from loving him and admiring his courage and his friendliness, he was terrific with every one of them, they knew that he was important for their operations, particularly in Greece, which was their major battle area, and Crete. So he was taken everywhere with them. So... Um, he was much favoured at that point.
1: So is it possible to estimate how many lives Horry saved during the war?
0: No, this would be a contentious point. I don't want to put a figure on it, but if there were 6,000 men in the division or in that unit, then you've got to say that half of them would have been probably slaughtered by the planes at some point had it not been for Horry, the early warning system. I think that's fair to say because I described many times in the book how they ran for cover and how the dog got them into that position. Now, um, some may argue with the number. I'd, I would say, you know, you're looking at at least a quarter to a half of those men. So probably 2,000 men could say that horry had an impact on them maintaining their lives during the war. I mean, there was, Don't forget they were fighting and there was machine gunning and there was still planes getting through and um, attacking when Horry couldn't stop them, you know, they'd be in their trenches but but, um, they were still hit. So it's very hard to estimate but certainly he was a hero of that division.
1: Now there's a great story in the book about there was a discussion over whether they should use Horry or Murchison to run messages and they held, they held a race to decide. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yes, well, it, there was um, at one point uh, Moody uh, was down at the base of a cliff and they were getting messages um, on Crete. Uh, that there might be Germans landing on boats, uh, which was happening, by the way, and so they had to send messages by air. They'd drop air messages saying, well, there's a boat that's arrived on this corner of the island and we think there are about 40 Germans with guns, all that sort of thing would come through. And they used to drop messages to the top of this plateau where the soldiers were based and Moody was down the bottom closer to the beach on patrol at that moment or just on lookout and they had to get messages down to him because he would, be closer sometimes to the possibility of Germans coming in by boat. And so they had to get messages down a very steep cliff. And Murchison, um, who was a cocky sort of character, gutsy as well, but he was a a bit miffed that they were going to send the dog down with a message to Moody and not him. He thought he could swing down through the undergrowth on a fairly steep cliff. Um, And they had a race because the others opted for the dog because he was nimble-footed and, you know, knew that he was going to Moody. And they had a race and uh, the dog beat him by. (laughs) It doesn't matter. So far, Moody tripped, fell, smashed his head, but (laughs) didn't make it down. And and, uh, Moody got the message minutes before before Murchison. So that was a done deal. It was the dog that was going to carry the messages down from the plateau. Lovely (laughs) dog.
1: now there there are so many incredible stories in the book of when Hori saved lives are there any other standout incidents you want to tell us about
0: well they were they were being evacuated from Greece at one point and um, their boat was sunk and they made sure that there was a cat called Ubu was thrown off um, but thrown onto its master 's back it landed on its master 's back uh, Ubu was saved and Hurry was swung down also he was taken down into the boat got off and was saved that was one moment they weren't going to let Hurry die and and they weren't going to let the cat die either but it was more of a pet the cat than something essential for the troops so that was the one of the one of the tales that that came out of the, the whole thing
1: Horry had a couple of little girlfriends overseas, didn't he? Can you tell us about them?
0: He did. He had um, – now, the first one was uh, – they called her Horrietta, and she was a local dog in Greece, and he got on famously with her. And, yes, well, when they got into uh, – when they got off the boats and into Greece properly into the mainland there, Hori met up with a little terrier dog – which was not unlike him to look at. There's actually pictures of them in the book, Um, and they called her Imshi. And she was a local dog, and they got on extremely well, and there were moments when Moody and company were quite worried because he wouldn't come back at night, and that was because he was playing up with this female dog. And then the boys had to, the diggers had to leave that area, and um, it was coming up to that, and then he got very ill, poor little Horry got very ill and looked like he would die. In fact, everyone was lining up to to pay their last respects, and even someone who hated him came in to have a look at him and make sure he was actually going to die. <laughs> it was one one enemy of the uh, of the signalers, and so most people were there to to give their sympathies and so forth and condolences because they thought he was going to go. And then someone thought they'd bring Imshi in, the girlfriend. And he immediately perked up. It was one of those moments. He wouldn't take his food or anything until that point. And then he perked up and took a few days. Actually, he, he wandered out into the snow after her. He couldn't stand up properly. But it was the moment that lifted his spirits and he recovered after that. So <laughs> uh, that was beautiful. But the problem was that when they left, he had to be virtually held down because when they left, the boys left to go to another part of Greece in the war. Um, he was very upset, Horry, and uh, it didn't work well for anyone because he was very upset that he had, to, he had to leave her. And he actually escaped from them going back to try and find her. He didn't succeed in that, but anyway.
1: So tell us now about when the rebels were, were heading back to Australia. How did they get Horry back to Australia? How did they hide him?
0: Well, they uh, they smuggled him in their packs back and uh, they weren't supposed to do that. They were given orders not to, um, in fact, he was given up to uh, police uh, at one point and, and then the, Moody went and got him out of that police station and, and hid him in the uh, camp they were in before they were being shipped out back to Australia and they managed to get him on board the boat they were taking, it was an American boat and it was run by a a, a guy that was known as a Maritime Caesar. He was a very tough guy. Uh, on board, now this was a, an American ship with American crew and Australians were on board, the 6th Division were on board, and he was tough character, this bloke, and he said, no animals on board. And Now, that was okay at the beginning. They didn't say anything, nothing happened, but as they were uh, travelling across to Fremantle, to unload the troops for the first time, the captain put his foot down and said no animals will go in. And the reason was that he'd been getting signals from Australian government in quarantine saying we don't want any animals to be allowed on shore. So in effect, he was carrying out orders and he was quite right within his position to carry out these orders. Now, there was a liaison on board called Bartholomew, an Australian guy who was effectively there to make sure there was no problems between the Americans on board and the Aussies because there had been, unfortunately, a few punch-ups and problems in Brisbane there were a couple of Americans who had been murdered and Australians have had been injured and so forth with the troops who were staying in Brisbane. That's the American troops who were fighting the Japanese. So this, this happens between fighting nations often who are on the same side. It's not unusual, and it wasn't unusual in, in any war, but they, the Australian government and the American government got together and said, well, we'll, we'll have this uh, officer on board called Bartholomew who will the A's and, and look after things so there's no problem. So at one point this captain got hold and said that the cat was on board, Ubu, I mentioned before, had to be thrown overboard. So they put him in a cage and he was thrown overboard, much to Mm-mm. the horror of the people who'd been with him, the, the diggers who'd been with him, the fighting men who'd been with this cat since, um, in fact, it's since uh, early in—I'll tell you where it was on the coast there. Anyway, it was, it was a long time, and the cat was a symbol for them. And then the captain said, "Well, we know there's a dog on board," and that was Hurry, of course. And they were the Americans on board began to search for Hurry, and Moody led a delegation in to see the captain, which was. Quite unrem- remember, he was a private Moody. He wasn't an officer. Bit of a rogue. One of the reasons I loved him as a subject because he was a mm-hmm. rogue. All authors like rogues <laughs> to write about. But he was a, a, a very intelligent man, and as well as being a rogue, and he went into the captain a delegation of six men from the diggers in front of Bartholomew. And Australian officers were there as well. They didn't know what he was going to say because they knew that Moody controlled the dog or the rumour of this dog. It was kept in the cabin and and so forth, wasn't allowed out on the deck. They didn't allow it on the deck. And uh, he, um, he said, the captain said, I'm really annoyed about this dog. I'm going to throw it in the furnace if I get it, right? And Moody said, well, I wouldn't do that uh, because the same fate might happen to anyone who perpetrates that against this dog. And, of course, the American captain was seething. He uh, said, you're, you're saying you're going to throw me in the furnace? And it was a, and Bartholomew had his shepherd moody out. Uh, and Bartholomew said, look, there are two things you've got to understand here. And he took him out on the deck where the machine gunners were training some of them, you know, firing their weapons out to sea. He said, these blokes have been fighting the Nazis in Europe, the Italians and the Germans in the Middle East, and they are serious men, and this dog is part of their... You know, they they regard him as part of their force, and if you do that, there's going to be trouble. He said one thing, and he said the second thing you've got to bear in mind is that this information, if there's a rebellion on board your ship, it'll go straight back to the President of the United States, where we're representing effectively the government there, and it'll be held to pay if you kill this dog, and there's a rebellion, a mutiny. And so the captain had to bite his tongue and eat humble pie and he he turned a blind eye to hurry being on board and and that's how they got him off into uh, Western Australia originally
1: and then from there he went on to to Melbourne is that where he was living for a while
0: yes well what happened was uh, the sixth division went up to fight in New Guinea so that the, the uh, all the diggers dispersed for a little while then regathered in Sydney to be sent up to fight. Japanese New Guinea. This is, uh, we're into 1942 now, and uh, Moody took the dog and gave him to his father to look after um, while he was away and to be hidden in St Kilda in Melbourne. And the dog um, (laughs) didn't like women for some reason. We don't exactly know why. We think that it may be the... uh, Libyans wearing dresses, um, male and female wearing the same sort of garb. It might have been anything, but he didn't like, he had to adjust to women and he didn't like Moody's father's girlfriend and he would attack her and she was petrified because he'd be quite quite vicious, he had incredibly sharp teeth. I mean, those teeth had bitten through, you know, asps and so forth. And there was a postman that he attacked as well. So it was, he was drawing attention to himself. He used to snap at the heels of the postman, didn't like the postman, who uh, was going to uh, report him and, and so forth. They had to calm him down. So he stayed with uh, Moody's old man until um, into 1945 when the when the guys came back from fighting in Japan. That's Moody and company and all the signalers. And they were up in Sydney at this point and um, they got the dog up there. There was one problem that happened at this time and that was that their sergeant, that's the signaler's sergeant, the man in charge of the little group of rebels, as they were called, wanted to raise money for the Red Cross. He was approached and they thought if they brought the the dog out into the open, into the public, that this would help. Raise money because he had such fame.
1: So up until now, for three years, Horry had been living as a fugitive, he had. under a different identity, I presume. <laughs> he had.
0: Yes, they <laughs> called him something else. And uh, at that point, at that point, rather oh, unthinkingly, Booker Roy Booker, the sergeant, who was a fellow, hell of a nice man, and 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 had the interests of the the dog and the the rebels in mind, uh, got him. Um, to be made a member of the rsl right <laughs>
1: how did they do that well
0: they, they, the story of hurry had gone it preceded him a bit and then they told the rsl what he'd done and so the rsl made him a full member <laughs> with all the accoutrements of the rsl and badges and everything and of course this was terribly insulting because aborigines who'd fought for us weren't allowed into the rsl it was so right mm. those days.
1: Yeah, it, And this was obviously all to protect Horry. So, so Jim Moody obviously feared that if the authorities found out that he still had Horry and had done this all this time and had sneaked him into Australia, what, what was he afraid that the authorities might do?
0: Well, Booker had made the call that um, the publicity would give it protection because it would be known as a hero dog. And it got massive publicity. When it, I mean, I'm seriously, you, there's nothing like it today. It was in all the papers to start with that he, this dog had done these wonderful things. Uh, but the government department, the health department in Canberra, said this can't happen. We have to have this dog quarantined, which was a euphemism for bumped off. They so were going to put mm. it down. And uh, there was a guy called uh, Wardle who was the um, director of the hygiene department. Now, whenever I've done the research on him or found anything about him, It's he's, he's like that warden in the Shawshank Redemption. Did you see that, the Shawshank
1: Yes, yes.
0: He's exactly like him. His whole behaviour was like him, uh, <laughs> even the way he, I obviously didn't hear him speak, but the way he wrote things and said things and reacted to things. So he was duplicitous. He said, "No, the dog will be taken in only for um, observation to see if he's fit and, and not carrying any diseases." Well, uh, I got to say that um, Moody didn't believe it. He just he'd been so close to the dog, he knew what the government would do. Anyway, he was ordered to take the dog into an Abbotsford centre, a health quarantine area, and a guy called John King, who was in charge of the of that centre, would receive the dog, and, and so they had to work out a plan.
1: And you call this the hoax of the century, don't you? What, what, what did they do? I started the book actually
0: with a, a dog being put down, and what uh, Jim Moody did, he, he, he was so keen to, and he took Booker along with him. He looked at all the dog pounds around Sydney where they were. Moody found the, the dog lookalike, a little terrier, and who was condemned to death. They were going to, they put them down after a couple of weeks in those days if they weren't, if owners didn't turn up or they had no owners. And he was, it was a Friday night, it was going to be put down on the Monday. So the timing was interesting from Moody's point of view. The dog was snappy, unhappy, uh, bit people, was not. Not a very nice little animal, but Moody, being a dog whisperer, knew how to handle him and took him out of the pound and delivered him to the John King, this fellow at Abbotsford. And he said, "Well, call me back on Sunday, and we'll tell we'll tell you what uh, Mister Wardle is going to do with him, what the direction is. But we think the dog will be all right because you've got a health certificate for him and so forth and so forth." And Moody had taken him straight to a vet who's named in the book, and I think it's long gone, but he was named in the book, and gave him a clean bill of health, even though he was quite vicious to the vet. So on the Sunday... Moody rang and he was told, well, he's going to be put down in five minutes' time. He rang at 3.55 in the afternoon and the dog was to be put down at four o'clock. So it was Wardle's decision, even though King had told Wardle in a telephone conversation, the dog is 100% fit, we've got the certificate from the vet, but... Wardle said, "No, we have to make an example of it. It has to be put down." And he was actually about to play golf, and he was quite annoyed that he was his golf game was going to be disrupted or not start on time because of John King telling him they're uh, trying to argue the case for this little dog. So it was put down. And uh, the hoax of the century, as I call it, and I don't call it that. I don't know if I call it that in the book, but it is the hoax of the century. Is that there were, the the public? reaction was incredible i don't think i've seen anything in in going through newspapers like it people writing to wardle saying i'm going to put you down i'm i'm a veteran from world war one i'm going to shoot you i'm trained to kill all this going on he was really worried that he was actually going to be assassinated because he'd put down this hero dog and it got worse because the prime minister at one point was going to intervene but didn't do it that was john Curtin, and he was aware that the dog um had been put down. Uh, it went right up to the Prime Minister. They had a special um, ceremony at the Cenotaph in Sydney in Martin Place for the dog. So it was an Anzac ceremony and the dog was lauded and praised and there were speeches made and everything in a pause. Of course, you've got to look at poor Moody at this point, because he's perpetrated this incredible hoax and he's had to live with this massive lie that he'd he'd had the whole the government, everyone up in arms over.
1: And the amazing thing to me was that he had to deceive everyone. I mean, Jim Moody had to deceive his poor father who'd looked after this dog for three years. He had to deceive the author of the book based on Jim Moody's diaries.
0: Yes. Oh, well, you've got, you're absolutely right. Moody had deceived everyone in this hoax, including his father who loved the dog, but was Dead, it would have been dead again. he knew his father was so righteous and, and a nice character he was too, but he, he, he knew that he would not countenance such a, a huge hoax on everyone. The only ones who knew the only individuals who knew were the six or seven rebels that were left, plus Barry the Butcher, who was told because he was really angry that Moody had taken the dog in to be executed, and he had to pecate him. Moody had to pacate Barry the Butcher. Uh, by telling him, look, you want to t- turn up in a pub in w- at Wollara on Anzac Night, and you might get a surprise. And of course, the the rebels met, and Barry, you know, broke down in tears because the dog was there. They hadn't they hadn't put Horry down, but they had to keep it very tight because it would have been. You have to take yourself back in time. This was, you know, a bit like the COVID period where the government has massive control over everything and. Police rule and military rule presides over everything. And you would have got a long jail sentence for something like this. I reckon Moody would have got 12 years, and the other rebels involved would have got years in jail for this behavior. They would have lost their land rights. As it was, Moody had been such a rebel during the war. He didn't get any land, Uh, he didn't get a pension. and so uh, he was warned that it would be even worse for him if it was found out. So they kept very tight about this, very quiet about it, and it wasn't until I came along really and did the heavy research on it what 70 70- well, 50 years later, 50, 60 years later, that they opened up because it had been a, you imagine the family were wanting to keep it very secret for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I had to track down where the dog was in Kachawa. I went there. The dog died um, uh, obviously a long time before I got there, but it lived a fairly normal life after the war, you know, for several years. So um, it was saved and every member of the of the rebels visited it. Uh, the dog, went from Sydney and wherever they were to visit the dog and reacquaint themselves with this animal that was staying at a place called Kudjawer on the border between Victoria and New South Wales. And Barry the Butcher was the most loyal who always used to drive down from Sydney and give him fine cuts of meat. Uh, <laughs> it was a lovely, lovely story. And um, when Moody was looking for a terrier to replace Horry, he found a lovely little Scotch Terrier, who was a female, of course, and he couldn't. He wanted to take her, and uh, the sergeant said, "Look, Roy Booker said, It's a. You've got to get a male dog. It doesn't look exactly like him.' You've got to. You know, he was quite worried he was going to take this dog because he'd fallen in love with it, and he went back and bought that dog, and he mated it with um, with Horry, and they had pups, and the pups, mm. um, I have photographs of the pups in the book, which is a wonderful. End of the story. So the gene carried on, that very brave gene from the Libyan desert.
1: (laughs) So how did you uncover the hoax? Was this from Jim's children that have told you about it?
0: Yes, it's very... Well, let's say people were particularly reticent and I had to pull out all stops of 50 years of experience with interviewing and talking to people about things and you began to work out the reticence had a background to it and then... The members of the family opened up, and then I was introduced to wives of Don Gill, his best mate, Moody's best mate, and other characters. Who then, realising the family had uh, had opened up about it, that they were going to open up too, but it wasn't. You just think of it; they were hiding it for at least twenty years. It was twenty years after war that Moody sent all the dogs paraphernalia. The you know the. Everything he'd worn, the, the special patches he had for being a member of the 6th Division, for being a member of the RSL and so forth, were sent to the Australian War Memorial where they're on display now. So, and they have been since 1965. Now, he took a, being a gambler as he was, um, he took that gamble that no one would really dig into it at that point. He'd only told one or two people outside the, um, outside the little rebel group. In all that time, which was pretty brave, because you'd be sitting on this guilt of having duped everyone from the prime minister up <laughs> to oh, the special thing at the senator. Can you imagine that he became? He was a big drinker before, but he became a total alcoholic after that. Because you know, there was one doctor who examined him after a car crash. He said, "There's no worries. Uh, we've done the blood examination. Um, the, there was no uh, no blood in it at all. <laughs> <Bloody alcohol. laughs>
1: <laughs> now, there's a ni- another nice postscript to the story is that there's actually a statue now of Hori, the war dog, in Koryong, isn't there?
0: Yes, there is, and that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. It's, it's, I'm sure there's going to be more on him. There'll be a film. I was approached by a film company and uh, we couldn't quite come to agreement on things and it wasn't made, but I think it'll happen as it will with Bill the Bastard and Red Lead. Eventually (laughs) these things will happen because they're great tales. I've been lucky to stumble onto them. It hasn't been my main stream of work being the animal correspondent, but uh, it's a fantastic digression from, you know, the heavier work you have to do on biographies (laughs) names like Monaghan. It's
1: it's a great tale, isn't it? Why why did you – he was always known as Horry the Wog Dog. Why did you decide to call the book Horry the War Dog instead?
0: Well – It wasn't just the political correctness. I just felt that um, this more represented what he was. To call him a wog, even if you stuck with that racist epithet, was not really representative of what he was. He was a war dog and he was a Mm. essential war dog, not in the typical fashion of having growling Alsatians and and Rottweilers and things. He was much more effective in being a, a useful animal at war.
1: Well, thank you for sharing another amazing story.
0: Great to talk to you, Jen. Thanks for your interest.
1: And if you want to learn more, you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by Jonty Burton and edited by Andrea Tis-Evanson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review. Or if you have questions or comments, please let me know by email at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au. Any clarifications or updates to the stories will appear in the show notes for each episode. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents...